Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Wednesday morning, the 14th of December. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Uh, Motion tabled by people before profit in the Dáil this week was intended to ask TDs today to say they have no confidence in the Minister for Housing. The government countered that motion by using its own time yesterday to vote confidence in Dara O'Brien as Minister. And of course, in order to ensure that we couldn't present our alternative proposals, which we have done again and again and again, the government put forward their own motion so people before profit have six and a half minutes to make their case, whereas if our motion had gone ahead we would have had 40 minutes. Instead, we have a cacophony of people standing up saying how wonderful the government policy is uh, and how well it is working. Let's hear what some of uh, those speakers said about how angry people are about the crisis in housing. When you put aside, last Kion Corlin, the angry bluster and the populist nonsense, what you see is a hard-working and creative minister who has led his department well in the last two and a half years. He has substantially changed the direction of housing policy, introducing a new era of building social and affordable homes, and is implementing the first comprehensive programme for action, not just on one or two elements of the housing sector, but on every element. And what's more, this action is starting to work. In spite of being directly and personally targeted by opposition parties and their online trolls, he has won every debate on this topic, exposing the vacuum which lies behind the mock anger and book-length emptiness of those who pretend to care about housing but just see it as another topic to exploit. The Taoiseach Michal Martin tarnished that Leo Vradker went on to claim that the People Before Profit motion only acted to shore up support for the government. People Before Profit knows that their motion uh, had no chance of passing and wouldn't build a single house or house a single other family. Its purpose was to embarrass and to personalise what is a deeply important political and societal issue. The time could have been used to put forward legislation on housing that might have become law, but it was not. This vote will only serve to demonstrate 
that the government has a clear working majority. That's the Tánaiste of Ratker and uh, there was a very comfortable majority in the Dáil last night with 86 TDs voting confidence in Minister Dara O'Brien, 63 TDs voting against. Let's speak to Richard Boyd Barrett, People Before Profit TD for Dunleary, who we heard at uh, the beginning of uh, those clips there. And uh, a very good morning to you, Richard Boyd Barrett, and thanks for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. When you look at the outcome of uh, the vote, it's hard to argue with what Leo Vratker had to say there. Well, you could say that about just about any vote because the government have a majority, so the government are going to win every vote. So therefore, the opposition should do nothing at all. That's just that's parliamentary debating tactics, uh, and it's not it's not a serious uh, it's not a serious argument about what is a very very serious subject is housing. And of course, what motivates us to put forward the motion is desperation around the crisis that is fa- are, is facing more than 11,000 people in homeless accommodation, more than 3,500 of those uh, children, many of them facing their second, third and fourth Christmas in homeless accommodation, thousands of people who are facing the prospect of being evicted, even though they've done nothing wrong, they've paid the rent because landlords are selling up, uh, and then you know more than 100,000 people on various housing lists, yeah. uh, young people completely unable to afford house prices that are out there, unaffordable rents. You can go through the list. It's yeah. a disaster. And absolutely we went through the list of eight specific issues uh, that you had in your motion on yesterday's programme uh, and you said that the Minister has failed in each of those eight areas, which is why you have no confidence in Dara O'Brien and asked the doll to vote no confidence in the Minister. In the six and a half minutes that you had last night, uh, you managed to tell some personal stories, uh, some personal experiences like that of Jacqueline and Richard, for example. Yeah, uh, and first of all, I do want to stress, this is, you know, this is not personal about Dara O'Brien. It's not personalised. It, the Taoiseach about, said it was uh, ter- not, d- d- direct again. and personally targeted. Yeah. Uh, Hall uh, O'Bradker said uh, it was intended to embarrass uh, and personalise the issue. It's absolutely not. And in fact, I don't do personal, and I made that point very clear at the outset and I always do whenever the emotions come up and we don't we haven't brought them very frequently in the all as it happens people before profit have not but it's about policy right and it's about trying to force and put pressure on the government to change a policy that is failing and it is precisely certainly what I'm motivated by are the heart-wrenching stories of people who day in, day out are coming into me and uh, I know this is happening all over the country, who are in absolutely dire straits. And as you say, I mentioned a case of a couple who are you know, in their late 50s, two teenage kids uh, who got a a letter last week from the courts saying that they're going to be in court in February uh, for an enforcement proceeding to evict them from the home where they've lived all their lives. These are working people, they pay their rent, uh, and they're out. And they fall between all of the cracks of the government's failures in policy. Their income is too high to be uh, eligible for social housing. Uh, there is no affordable housing uh, available to them, they're not even entitled to HAP support or anything like that. So literally... Uh, Jacqueline was bawling, crying to me on the phone saying, I'm going to be, you know, on the side of the road in a car with my family in the new year. Uh, 
because we have nowhere to go. And that story is repeated again and again and again, often with people who are very ill, uh, very, very vulnerable people, so many kids being traumatised with all of this. And the government refused to take measures that we have proposed again and again. What are those measures? Uh, Because there's so many uh, hard stories, and they're very hard stories. You also spoke about a woman in her 50s on dialysis, a 73-year-old man with a spinal condition, uh, and a 59-year-old man with Alzheimer's. And I think people could spend a lot of time in a day going through all of uh, the stories that they've heard about. But where are the solutions? Because the government says what it is doing uh, is coming up with results now and we're only starting to see them. But uh, they claim that people before profit aren't offering solutions. Well, see, that's completely untrue. In June, and as part of our frustration, in June we put forward a motion to the doll that was all about solutions. It was, it was a whole series of solutions and the government voted against all of them voted down the motion and just replaced it with a motion where they praised their own policies. Uh, so they won't listen to the, mo- uh, to the proposal. But, I mean, among the proposals were that we would have a policy where people are facing evictions through no fault of their own, that the government would step in and purchase those properties rather than allow people to be evicted where it was on grounds of sale, which is where most of the evictions are taking place. Uh, and that there should be a clear policy to do that so that people will, will not be made homeless. And where the state, you know, when they are made homeless, uh, eventually the state will have to help them find someone or uh, carry the cost of emergency accommodation. It doesn't make any sense to let them go homeless. So we argued that the money, and let's remember the government, have not spent £700 million that was allocated for housing this year, that that money should be used to purchase properties where people were threatened with homelessness. Uh, that we should also, <clears throat> at least temporarily, have a ban on evictions where there are no false evictions. The government said they were going to do that, but in fact what they brought in has not done that, and the case of Richard and Jacqueline was precisely, I put it forward, to, to highlight that fact, that in the midst of the so-called eviction ban, which isn't an eviction ban, uh, they are going to be in court to be evicted. Uh, so these are simple measures to stop the flow of people into homelessness. Uh, we are also saying that the uh, 10% social and 10% affordable proportion of new developments that the government gets is not enough. Uh, and that we need a higher proportion of new developments that are happening that are built by the private developers to be going to social and affordable. I mean, to put it simply, we don't see what is the point in uh, properties being sold at unaffordable prices that only international investors can afford. And that's what's happening at the moment. So anything new that's built, certainly in the major urban centres now, is unaffordable to ordinary buyers. So the only people who do buy it are big investment funds who then charge absolutely extortionate rents, often those rents end up being paid by the state anyway through RAS, HAPS and leasing arrangements. So we're saying rather than that insane situation, the state should take a bigger portion of those developments in the first place for social and affordable housing. And you're saying Uh, build. Uh, 
Oh, and naturally. Uh, and and, and, and the government yeah. is saying, Bill, I want to ask you about uh, the new legislation uh, which will change planning laws in this country because we live in a, a country where in the last 30, 40 years you could buy planning uh, and uh, brown paper envelopes were commonplace and resulted in developments that should never have been built and you would have hoped that people would have objected to them and that their objections would have been upheld. Now there seems uh, to be uh, a move to limit the way that people can object to planning. Is that a, a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, well, let me first of all deal with the build point. And if that wasn't clear, I just want to stress that all mm. those other measures are in a way are stopgaps to rebuild. And uh, but what relates to that debate about planning is, you see, the government are suggesting that the reason we aren't getting the delivery of new housing that we desperately need to get is because of people making planning objections. And that is simply not the case. Uh, as I pointed out on a number of occasions in the Dáil, and Killian Woods wrote about in the Sunday Business Post, uh, the government's own evaluation service has brought out figures in the last week or so showing that there are 70 thousand planning permissions for apartments in this country, but that only 5,000 are uh, being commenced every year, right? So there's much more planning permissions than we need. Uh, And then there's other planning permissions as well, not just for apartments, for houses, but they are not being brought, they're not being commenced by property developers. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us is the property developers are making an absolute fortune on having planning permissions granted, which immediately increases the value of their property, and they are sitting on uh, and speculating on land values. That's the problem. There's people making money out of the housing crisis. So uh, reducing the ability of local communities to raise objections or to put in observations or to take a judicial review around a planning development is is completely... uh, pointing in the wrong direction as to what is the problem, and it's actually limiting the democratic rights of ordinary people. The mm. problem is the speculation of property developers uh, who are building, if they bother to build, only for profit and when it suits them. And, and is, we, is there a risk of taking no, local knowledge out of the planning process by doing this, uh, and that will have developments on floodplains like we've seen happen before? Absolutely. Of course there is. And we, we know this. And there's a very worrying centralization in the bill that's been pro- pro- proposed even today in the Dáil. Uh, very worry, worry, worrying centralization of power into the hands of the minister to uh, appoint people to the board, to onboard Planola, which is a return to all the sort of stuff we saw, which led to the madness of the Celtic Tiger, where stuff was built on floodplains, and as we know, much of the stuff was built... It was not built properly. There was no building control. It wasn't properly fire. Uh, there wasn't proper fire safety, and with huge problems that people are still dealing with the consequences of today. So the idea that yeah, exactly, that you minimise you know the ability of local communities or stakeholder groups, environmental groups or other groups to make their submissions and observations to ensure that we have proper and sustainable planning. Uh, this is really what the private developers want. It's not going to help increase the housing output, but what it will do is facilitate uh, the speculation of property developers. Right. Um, We have a a crisis that's recognised by everybody. Uh, The government says uh, that the fruit 
uh, of uh, its work uh, will be realised in time uh, and we have to give them time. Uh, How long do you think that we would have to give current government policies before we see real solutions? I I, I mean, the problem is, and this is why we brought the motion, I just don't see it happening. Uh, I mean, because obviously the most important solution to all of this is for the state to build on a very, very large scale public and affordable housing on the land that it has. Mm. And that is just not happening. I mean, the housing for all targets were that there were supposed to be 9,600, I think, social houses built this year. By halfway during through the year, they'd only built 1,600. In the four Dublin local authorities, they'd built nothing Mm. of new council houses, right? That's how bad the situation is. And to be honest, it's difficult to understand what's going on uh, as to why this is not happening. But certainly one part of it is that over decades, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael governments gutted out the capacity of local authorities to actually build stuff themselves. So they end up then having to rely on private developers. Uh, who have no interest really in solving the housing crisis. Okay, but Leo Radker becomes Taoiseach on Saturday and he says he's going to have some real focus on this and uh, to expedite uh, the measures that are in place and to see some real results under his tenure as uh, the leader of uh, the country. Um, I take it you don't have much confidence uh, in this reshuffle as well because part of the Cost of Living Coalition campaign uh, has to do with housing. It's a big part of it, I think, and there'll be another protest uh, on Saturday to coincide uh, with the handing over of uh, the baton. That's right. Uh, the Cost of Living Coalition is going to be holding a protest at one o'clock outside uh, Leinster House on the day that they are rotating the position of Taoiseach. And it's a bit of a, a sort of bad joke, really, isn't it? I mean, what we've had Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael governments for 100 years, more than 100 years, uh, Leo Varadkar has been in the doll as a minister for more than a decade and the housing crisis has got worse every year so the idea that this changing the baton is going to mark a new departure in policy I ju- is just you know stretches all credibility uh, and I think the, you know all the evidence suggests that this government is primarily uh, as they have been for many years looking after the interests of property investors, speculators, the banks, corporate landlords. Their main objective is not uh, to actually deliver secure, affordable housing for ordinary people. And, uh, you know, we think that's why we need a change of government. We need to break the cycle of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and have a government that will say that actually people, basic needs like housing, like health, uh, like education being available to everybody uh, it, it have to be the priority of government rather than corporate interests and uh, that's why we will be protesting again and why we don't have a lot of confidence that this government is going to change OK, uh, I should mention uh, before uh, we hang up on you this morning uh, that we had asked uh, Fianna Fáil to put forward the Minister Darrow O'Brien or uh, another uh, member of Fianna Fáil to debate these issues with you this morning but unfortunately, and apologies to you Richard Boyd Barrett, uh, there wasn't anybody available to us but thank no you indeed. Thank you for joining us on the programme today. Richard Boyd Barrett, People Before Profit TD for Dunleary. 
Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on LMFM. Now let's go to Moneygall following uh, that dreadful sheep kill. Uh, if uh, you were watching television last night uh, and managed to not to look away, you'll know how shocking it must have been for John Healy and his sons. Uh, John is on the line together with Kevin Comiskey, chairman of the IFA Sheep Committee. John, a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. You lost fi- 50 out of 120 lambs, but uh, what happened was uh, beyond anyone's comprehension. Beyond anyone's comprehension is right. It's devastating. It's horrific. It's a horrific scene to have come across for my sons, myself, and my neighbours that came to me aid. Um, never want to witness anything like it again. It's a complete massacre. Yeah. When you when you think near, nearly half of them killed in probably a couple of hours. Mm. And the stress on the rest of them is still to be seen in them. Uh, I was feeding them meal there all along, and they'd come, they'd come in around, they'd nearly knock you down, as, as Kevin would know when they're feeding sheep, that they'd, they'd knock you down for the meal, but they're, they're standing off, they're not coming in. If you turn suddenly, mm. they're gone. They're traumatised. Just devastating. Yeah. Devastating. They're traumatised. Yeah. Mm. No. Uh, understandably so. Uh, how are you and your sons? Uh, your two sons are, are, are both teenagers who discovered the That's kill. right. Yeah. That's right, yeah. They're one seventeen and one fourteen. Look, they're, they're saying they're grand and this, that and the other, but sure, they have to feel some little thing. They're, they're just teenagers. Teenagers, teenagers don't, don't pretend they're, they're hard men in their own. Do you know what I mean? They're, they're playing the hard men, but I would have considered myself tough, but... It has an effect on me. Mm. And my neighbours were saying, only talking to one of them last night, and he just, he still can't get the images off of his head. He said, and it didn't affect, it didn't affect me the same as you. He says, but I can't get them in, images out of my head. Mm. Yeah, no, it'll stay, especially uh, the group of lambs that were cornered by the two dogs. That's right. That's right, yeah. Sure, sure, it was a bundle, it was a bundle of lambs corralled into a corner, and there was 11 of them in the bunch, and... One dog obviously held him in the corner while the other one killed him. Mm. And it's just dreadful, dreadful to think that them dogs are still still out there. Nobody knows where they are, but they obviously went home somewhere. And I'm just pleading with whoever they went home to, please put them down because them dogs are killers and they will kill again. Mm. Oh, it's dreadful. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Um, how do you feel about the people who own the dogs? Look, I, just, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about them. We all have dogs. Most people have dogs nowadays, but we all try look after them. But these dogs are these dogs are trained to kill because I have no doubt in my mind they are trained to kill because I've seen dog kills before and the sheep are torn from behind. They're grabbed in different directions. Each one of these sheep, the 50 of them, Kevin will clarify this, mm. he saw it. Mm. 50 of them were caught by the throat. So these dogs, these dogs were killers mm. and trained to kill. I have a feeling they were trained to kill. And the owners, look, all I'm pleading with, I don't know who they are or what they are or where they're from, but just put the dogs down. They will kill again. Uh, and and uh, heaven uh, forbid, heaven forbid, uh, them people live beside people. There might be children up the road. There might be a woman out walking. Them dogs will go for blood again. I have no doubt in my mind mm. if they get loose. And you've no doubt either, uh, I think I'm right in saying that the owners know 
uh, who the dogs are because of the state that the dogs must have come home in? They had to have come home. Even if they licked themselves for an hour, they would not get the blood. The vet said they have, from the tip of their nose to the tip of their tail, he says, the carnage they caused, he said, they are covered in blood. Mm. Kevin, uh, yeah, stay with us, John. Kevin, as you say, is on yeah. the line. Kevin Kominski, the chair of the IFA Sheep Committee, and you've seen many, many kills over the years, but nothing on this scale. No, no, indeed, I haven't. And, and good morning to you mm-hmm. both. Uh, good morning, John. Um, no, I travelled down there yesterday morning because, look, I'd, I'd go to any farmer and try and help them out the best we can, you know, regardless of the scale. But as John said to me, in his mind, it's still in my mind what I witnessed there yesterday morning. And, and uh, the ferocity of it is, is what John was rightly uh, pointing out there, it was caught by the throat and then the animals will kill again and, and had bloodthirsty on their mind. And I suppose even as late as last night, and I made this point when I met with the minister too last night, um, and we spoke about it in John's house afterwards when we were having a cup of tea, thankfully that that his two sons went up and, and got the sheep and that, but thankfully that them dogs didn't turn on them because... It was. It, you don't know what them two dogs is capable of at the minute after seeing the horrendous damage they've done there. Mm. What did the minister say about the attack? I'm sure he's fully briefed on what happened. He's fully briefed, and in fairness to yourselves and all the media, it uh, was unabated, and John, I'm sure, was the same. And indeed, Anna Marie Holton up in Kildare, I'm after speaking to a radio station there. Two horrific attacks there in the last couple of days, but it's an ongoing thing, as I told him. I'm getting phone calls on a daily, weekly basis. And, you know, it's, it might be on a smaller scale, but it's happening. So I explained the whole lot to him. He was asking that different items was on the agenda, and he was asking us to come forward to, with proposals and ideas for different things. I pointed out clearly, I said, Minister, we came forward with proposals and ideas last May. So we want action you met, with, you met with the minister last May, didn't you? Met with the minister last May, both ministers Humphreys and McConnell. Yeah. Now they are saying Minister O'Brien, Darrell O'Brien, is involved in this as well. But I told him the time for talking is over now. We need to get them all round the table and get action. Get this all pulled together between them, no matter how it's done. Mm. So he did give a commitment for that it'll be done in January. So I said I want to come through legislation. I want it sorted in January, no later. Right. Uh, and will this be an overhaul uh, on keeping dogs, uh, keeping animals uh, in general? Because Charlie McConnell, the same minister, was asked by the Taoiseach to take a look at the dangerous breeds and if people should have them or if they needed to have them or if there was any point in having them as pets. That's right. And of course, that I think comes in under indeed Minister Humphrey's uh, remit. It's the breeding of dogs and that. So that's why he wants to pull it all in together. And it will, the whole lot will come in. It's all under the microchip and then the traceability. And as he said himself in a statement the other day after that horrific ex, uh, thing in Wexford, he said it's enforcement. And I have been pointing that out to him on numerous times any time I met him. Enforcement will be the key here. If this isn't enforced, it will fall at the first prince. So feet on the ground, powers to the Gardaí and dog wardens in place. And as John said, if there's dogs got in this, uh, like attacks like that, they have to be put down because they will kill again. Okay. Would uh, an apology from the dog owner suffice for you, John? Look, at this stage, all I want is the dogs put down. I'll accept any apology or anything. I don't mind. It's just 
this can't happen again. Mm. It just can't. Like we're me and my neighbour, we're 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 have all our animals housed at this moment. Two months sooner than we should have. It's an expense. It's labour. It's work, and we're just in fear of letting them animals back out, and they're going to start lambing. Mm. Where do we where do we turn? What do we do? We're terrified. Yeah. Well, you have to keep them in. We we saw you on television last night uh, with uh, what's remaining of your flock behind you being housed indoors. There's a cost to that. Uh, You believe uh, the loss uh, of uh, the 50 lambs uh, would be the equivalent of €10,000. You don't know what's going to happen uh, to... Uh, the remaining lambs uh, and uh, what impact that's going to have on them or if there's going to be an additional cost uh, as a result. Then there's the trauma, the psychological uh, part of this and the upset that it has caused you and your family, uh, not to mention the fact uh, that you've uh, had to face into these scenes but also to clean up after what's happened. That's right, yeah, exactly. No, it is devastating all around and again, I just plead with the owners to put them down because... Something has to be done. People have to be responsible for their animals. Like Kevin was saying, getting on to the minister there, like dogs should be microchipped, licensed. There should be more dog wardens around. And us with sheep, we all know about the department coming in, checking our sheep. They have scanners in their hands and they walk around the shed with the scanner and it reads every tag. Yeah. And like, it, it, can't a dog warden have a scanner in his car and put a few more of them out there? Yeah. Drive around every town and village you go through, you'll see dogs roaming the, st- roaming the footpaths people out walking their dogs they're most of them are very responsible people let a dog warden pull up run the scanner over the dog's body is there a chip in it if there is away you go if there's not pick it up and take it away i would imagine 99 percent of dog owners are, are very responsible but it's the one percent very responsible yeah, yeah exactly mm. exactly uh, most people are responsible and they love their dogs like yeah. their children we have one at home in our house and she's like a, a fourth child in the house mm. but it's it's just something has to be done. Well, like it only takes one dog one. owner with two dogs, uh, uh, as in your experience, uh, to destroy 50 lambs and all of the yeah. other damage that goes with it. Yeah, and all the other people out there, all around the country. I'm getting highlighted because I have a high number. But there's loads of people, I guarantee you, that farmers waking up this morning to go out to find a kill somewhere as well and there'll be nothing about it. Well, it's, common, it, like that. it's commonplace in the coolies where dogs are continuously roaming. Yeah, this is the thing. Like people go out, I, I have a hill and I was a woman walking it, it was a walk on it one time and I met a woman on it and she had a dog and I had the signs up, no dogs allowed and she turned on me like a savage over this dog, this is my dog and I I am entitled to take this where I want and this, that and the other, mm. like that's what you come across. Are you and insured it, John? Sorry? Are you insured for this sort of thing? No, no they don't, there's no insurance, you have to fit into a whole lot of criteria to get sheep cover for for sheep killing cover there's a lot of rigmarole to get into it you have That's to be a certain distance yeah. from towns you have to, there's a lot of look yeah. it's like everything with insurance companies you're covered for everything until something happens Unfortunately, that's very true. But God, that's yeah. that's, uh, that's really just uh, we we allow the situation to continue, uh, but uh, we can't insure ourselves against what is permissible. Yeah, this is it. That seems mad, Kevin. So, obviously, we have to stop this from happening, Kevin. We have to stop this from happening. And as John pointed out there, the, the lady with her dog, a colleague pointed to me last night that uh, his daughter was out walking the dog, walking along the road with his, with the child, sorry. 
and this dog was loose and the dog ran over and kind of snapped at the child and his daughter pointed out to the owner of the dog, you should have that dog on a lead and it's the responsible thing to do was have the dog on a lead. And they just shouted back and left, Barra, put your effing child on a lead and yeah. walked on. Well, let's you take know. the dog off them and stop them having yeah. a right to have a dog, I would think, if they're like that. That's uh, right. We, ha- we have to leave it there, unfortunately, but thank you both very much indeed uh, for taking the time to be with us uh, today. Kevin Comiskey is uh, chair of the IFA's Sheep Committee and to John Healy, a sheep farmer in Moneygall, who, as I'm sure you're very much aware, lost 50 lambs in uh, that attack on his farm over the weekend. Michael Reed on LMFM. Shocking. That's what Tommy said when he called us. Shocking to listen to John recall what happened on his farm over the weekend. And it's about time that the minister put in place proper structures to tackle this problem once and for all. What happened was devastating, to say the least. It can't be allowed to happen again. People's livelihoods can be wiped out. All because some people cannot be bothered to look after their pets properly. It's amazing, isn't it, that you can't get insurance. Uh, Davy says anyone who brings their dog out in public or in rural areas should be forced to keep their dogs on a leash at all times. If uh, they don't, then they should face huge fines or if they are repeat offenders, they should face jail time for public endangerment. Thank you indeed uh, for your calls uh, to the programme today. Uh, somebody else texting saying, I disagree. Most do- dog owners are not responsible I see several households taking not taking responsibility, dogs following people uh, and causing problems uh, in so many places. Uh, WhatsApp message uh, from somebody who says, Hello, Michael, why can't the dog warden check all property in that area to find out who those two dogs are? belong to and have those dogs put down as a a result I'm sure that's what Denise was saying. Uh, Thank you indeed Denise uh, for your WhatsApp message to the programme. Remember if you'd like to comment on the programme our telephone number is 0419832000 text or WhatsApp 0861800658 email michael at lmfm.ie a number of people in touch with us about housing as well following our initial conversation with Richard Boyd Barrett this morning bring some of those comments a little bit later on Uh, but I thought I'd play you a little bit of Peter Fitzpatrick's contribution to the debate last night uh, because Peter Fitzpatrick was saying that the people before profit motion of no confidence in Dara O'Brien as minister was opposition for opposition's sake. They're saying that we need a housing model that delivers housing from the state to meet the needs of people. How can this, how would this look? What do they propose? If they really wanted to help the people and not follow their own agenda, they would put forward ideas. Our political alliance does not come first. The people of Ireland must come first. I must hand it to Minister O'Brien because he's doing a good job. He is, he is open to hearing any innovation ideas, such as when I proposed modular homes in the Dáil a couple of weeks ago. We had numerous discussions on this, and it's since set a date for him to visit and talk and meet the developers. We need to stop playing political football and put, and put our heads together to resolve homelessness and come up with an innovation housing initiative. Independent TD, Peter Fitzpatrick. 
And apologies there for the abrupt cut off in the forecast. It's going to be barking cold and I think we all know that anyway. Now let's uh, talk uh, about sexual relations, sexual violence and consent. What is consent? Well, I think uh, most of us would say we know, but uh, we're probably more comfortable saying we we think we know, but we know that the answer is somewhat complicated. It's uh, something uh, that is uh, going to be on the agenda for students in further education and in uh, the training sector. Indeed, staff are to be equipped with information skills and support to help those who are in education and training to understand what consent is. The Active Consent Programme is an initiative run by NUI Galway and funded by the Department of Justice together with the Department of Further and Higher Education Research, Innovation and Science. Let's speak uh, to Jessica Mullen, who's Professional Learning and Development Hub Manager in ETBI. That's uh, the Education and Training Boards of Ireland. Good morning to you, Jessica, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, It can be a, a question that can be quite complicated to answer and sometimes nuanced and can surprise people when they're told that there wasn't consent when they at some occasion believe that there was. Exactly Michael and thank you for the opportunity I suppose to talk about those active consent programmes and um, this morning briefly that are now available to our further education and training staff um, and obviously onboarding that, that information then onto our learners um, in, in the classroom. As you say it can be something I suppose that's automatically assumed and um, that consent is, is, give, is given but um, the aim of these three programmes that are running out across the FET sector at the moment really I suppose are to create the awareness I suppose of what is consent and what um, and then I suppose equipping our staff with the skills in the classroom to, to let our students know, you know, in, in, in the first instance, really, um, I suppose, as, as what, what needs consent and, and what is considered not consensual, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Um, and how, how we're managing that really, I suppose, in a series of promotional videos and e-learning resources at the moment as well. And uh, to report uh, when there's been sexual relations without consent, uh, a disclosure of sexual violence, uh, people can be hesitant uh, to come forward uh, because of the confusion that hangs over what is consent. Absolutely, absolutely. And as you, as you quite rightly say, that there is a fine line there sometimes. Um, I suppose really for, for your listeners today as well, um, you know, who may not be in a teaching role, but may be the parents to, to kids who, who are kind of at that age as well. Um, the Active Consent team based at NUIG Galway, who we're partnered with to deliver this training, have an excellent online resource called consenthub.ie. Um, and I think just, I suppose, outside the classroom, there's excellent resources there. Um, I suppose kind of self-help and toolkits as well to parents to kind of talk to their children or for, you know, students of a certain age to, you know, access those resources and to kind of inform themselves as well. Right. Uh, instead of what is now the normal source of information, which is the internet and uh, at times, at least, if not quite often, pornography. Of course, absolutely. And I think, again, it comes back to that fine line and it comes back, as opposed to younger people potentially going with the crowd. Um, and I think that comes out quite strong and um, in the training that's delivered to our staff as well to try and inform students and give students, I suppose, the confidence really and um, to come forward when they feel, I suppose, that their rights have been violated or in a situation where maybe um, it might have been inferred that they were giving consent, but thereafter they didn't give consent. Um, and to really, I suppose, know what to do next. Yeah, and, and saying yes isn't necessarily. 
One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Consent, is it? I mean, if she says yes uh, after a bottle of vodka uh, or whatever, that's not necessarily consent. Or um, there can be confusion then uh, uh, about uh, people going to bed together, whether it's after a few drinks or otherwise. That doesn't necessarily uh, mean that somebody has consented to having sex. I agree. I agree fully. And I think that comes out very, very strong. I mean, all of those resources that the active consent team have available. And actually, in addition to that, um, they're running around the country. Um, I suppose check check the schedule locally um, around dramas and plays as well that actually, you know, play out. Um, I suppose very typical circumstances too, um, where, you know, a group of young people might be together. Um, and again, you know, leading to a situation where an individual might feel violated or where their consent might be um, a little bit confusing. Um, leading to you know a very difficult situation for that for that individual um, mm. and a life changing situation for 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 that that individual. So um, I think it's really wonderful that we have these programs available and um, generally in the public. And um, it's great that there has been such I suppose um, a promotion um, of this whole area to really inform people where those fine lines are. Um, and obviously in the event when when that line is crossed, mm. um, what steps to take and really that it's okay. Um, you know, consent is for everybody and that it's okay to approach somebody or it's okay to say no mm. um, or to approach somebody, um, as, as we say there, and, uh, and look for, for help if, mm. if, if something has happened. Yeah. Um, I, I think uh, the um, finer the line, the more confusing it gets and uh, the more difficult it is uh, for people uh, to come forward if uh, they feel they've been violated. Uh, there's many ways of, of having sex, of course, and uh, if you've consented to one form of consent, that doesn't mean that you've consented to having sex in every possible way. Absolutely, yes. Um, and I think as well, um, just to access the consent hub.ie as well, just, just to see those, those various um, ways, I suppose, mm. where um, we would absolutely think and we would normalise situations. Um, and again, just to go back and just to let people know that it's really important to have those boundaries. It's important to say no um, and really 
you know, it's not it's not about those big things, as you mm. say. Um, it's about the smaller things as well, because everybody has different boundaries. And it's really important um, that they're all respected. Mm. And I, I think uh, as you get into uh, the minutiae of it, uh, the conversation becomes more awkward for some people than it does for others. Uh, as you say, people can... Um, uh, inform themselves on consent.ie but you're asking uh, staff now to facilitate training of people in education and to, to hold workshops and to deal with disclosures and so on. How is this being received by staff? It has been received phenomenally well. Um, I suppose we um, ran our first pilot in FET last summer in July, where normally our teachers are, are gone, and quite quite rightly. Um, but I just couldn't believe that we had close to 100 people actually enrolled. And we have more than doubled that figure now. We've got programmes just concluding, um, actually, for, for FET staff, which vary across a, different, um, a couple of different options for them, I suppose. Really, we have a three-hour programme, we have a 12-hour programme, which goes a bit deeper, and then there's a 27-hour um, Accredited module as well, and um, that we've got lots of, of colleagues engaging with, thankfully across the loud loud meet as, as well. And mm. um, you know, so we will run more programs in February. There are public programs there. Um, again, all information again um, available um, on consenthub.ie um, and with the Active Consent Hub um, directly. But I suppose it's been very encouraging for us, Michael, because while this initiative may be um, already not well established but somewhat established in second level um, and completely in higher education this is sort of a new turning point for further education and training and it's really wonderful and our staff want to get involved and that's just so heartening to see. Um, We had an online media campaign that ran at the end of November and the engagement in it really and I suppose the positivity around the whole area um, and I suppose the assurance from our point of view that there is a need for this type of training coming across I suppose really in the comments and um, the various interactions across social media. Mm. Am I I right in saying uh, that this is urgent it's got to a stage uh, where we need this sort of training for young people urgent and as a result of uh, that, uh, it, it really is important that the staff uh, do see that and get it involved and provide that training, train themselves and then train young people. Yes, absolutely. And I think um, to inform our staff in the first instance, really, so they can build the confidence and the capability in the area. Um, we're, we're probably dealing with a new generation and um, social media. Um, well in play here as well so mm. I think what's coming into the classroom um, obviously is evolving and it's really important to keep our staff trained up and I suppose um, you know, sort of confident in that training that they receive and that they deliver back into the classroom so they're equipped in every way to deal with this really, really, really hot topic and really important topic right okay. now. Okay, alright, more resources at consenthub.ie Thank you indeed, Jessica, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Jessica Mullen, Professional Learning and Development Hub Manager in ETBI, the Education and Training Boards of Ireland. Let me bring you some of uh, those comments uh, that have been coming to us uh, about housing. Some of them are still uh, more comments uh, about dogs uh, that I'll bring to you now as well. Paddy Duffy saying, I think it's absolutely fabulous to hear Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael politicians praise one another. The old civil war politics must be dead. Uh, I'm not cynical like some who say it's only for self-preservation. Those same people even said that was why they went into government together in the first place. 
think you've got your tongue in your cheek this morning, Paddy. Uh, but he also says that Leo Bradker has been around the cabinet table since March of 2011, and it's only now that he's seen uh, this road to Damascus uh, with. Uh, this move to solve the housing crisis, <laughs> housing, health and education problems uh, that we've had for years. Total BS. And he says uh, it looks like Fianna Fáil are up to their own shenanigans with this new legislation on planning. We strongly need planning regulations. Uh, of course, they can be streamlined, uh, but no more housing on floodplains, shodding buildings and in areas without services. So the Galway tent is no place in the state ever again. Uh, we remember what that cost us and is still costing us today, Paddy says. Thank you indeed for that. Uh, we Derek Cuthbert in Dundalk saying, I have great sympathy for the farmers and the sheep, of course. Uh, the government should give a grant to farmers to erect secure fencing to protect sheep. No dogs or hungry foxes should be harmed in any way, says Eric. Very true, Eric. Uh, I suppose the other thing is that the dog owners could control them. Valerie says, in relation to dogs, it's shocking what happened to to the farmer's sheep. I'm a responsible dog owner, yet those dogs should be put down and the owners made to pay for the damage. I hope the new legislation will reflect the responsibility of all dog owners, not just certain breeds. I think it should be pointed out that any dog can kill. All dogs, no matter what breed they are, should be wearing ID tags and on a lead in public. If not, they should be lifted straight away without any excuse, Valerie says. Thank you indeed for that, Valerie. Uh, we uh, text from Deirdre and Kells, who says that these dogs uh, should be kept under control. Uh, She was attacked years ago uh, and uh, is not ever going to forget it either, for that matter. A very serious uh, attack, I I think. Um, We'd another text then from somebody uh, who was asking if housing is such a crisis, if that crisis is so bad in this country, why are we allowing refugees come into the country? Now, I, I don't know um, if that's a topic uh, that uh, our caller has been having uh, down at uh, the Dole office or uh, whatever uh, on TikTok. Maybe they spend their day on TikTok um, uh, because uh, it's the big mouths and the layabouts who always uh, confuse the two, isn't it? Uh, the same people who were worried about COVID and uh, 5G masks and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but uh, thank you indeed for contacting us today. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Last Saturday week, um, there were 11 ambulances parked outside uh, Drahada, uh, Our Lady of Lourdes in Drahada, because there was no beds or trolley, saw them inside, uh, Minister. And uh, I know 17 consultants wrote to the HSA, I'm not sure if they wrote to yourself as well, um, stating that um, that it wasn't safe to uh, divert patients from... from um, Navin to Drogheda, and if it happened, that it could cost lives, uh, Minister. Um, so, uh, it, it, and, and the, the consultants also said that there were 16 doctors short in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital, and there, there was no way they could cope with the extra patients, and the move would result in an absolute loss of life. And Minister, we hear uh, from tomorrow that there are going to be ambulances, there are going to be um, 
bypass from, from Navin to Drogheda, Minister. And we have a review, Minister, that was completed two, two months ago, Minister. We, as elected representatives, haven't a clue what's on the, in that review. And we, have, we have complained, Minister, from day one that um, the, the option of protecting, enhancing and investing in the emergency department in Navin Hospital wasn't included in that review. Uh, it's, it's something that we were very disappointed about. And, and, and we're, we're ho hoping uh, that not, but the only thing in the review is how best to close the emergency department of the ICU in Navin. I, I don't think, Minister, that's good enough. That's Sinn Féin's Johnny Gurk speaking in the Dáil last night to a debate on the health services in this country. On Thursday night last, uh, the paediatric A&E in Drogheda told parents and children that it was so stuffed in there that they needed to wait in their cars. And some of those children had to go to sleep uh, while waiting in the A&E um, in their cars again in that really cold night. The previous Saturday, Draw the A&E became a long-term car park for 11 ambulances uh, who waited for five hours to deposit their patient there because there was no bed, chair, or um, trolley available for them uh, in that um, A&E. Um, so we have a situation where in our particular region, we have a major crisis going on in terms of uh, capacity. Because of those ambulances being tied up, we had no ambulances being available in Cavan and Monaghan for an extended period on that uh, night. That same too is Padreto Bain speaking in that same debate. The Minister has been made aware of repeatedly of concerns in relation to safety for critically ill, unstable patients presenting at Navin A&E. But to state it clearly, those safety concerns are directly related to a chronic under-resourcing of acute and emergency services at Navin and for years. Staff were not recruited, staff were not retained. Acute and emergency services were allowed by design to drift into a situation of precarity. Given the population of Meath, given the demand for emergency services in Meath from the people of Meath, given the physical distance to the next nearest emergency departments and given the state of over overcrowding in those same emergency departments, no spare beds, no spare trolleys, no spare chairs, adults left waiting in a car park in the back of an ambulance, sick children have it even worse, they're sent out with their parents to wait in the car. It's not a situation that should uh, be allowed to proceed. That's Darren O'Rourke speaking in that same debate on health services, which was addressed by the Minister for Health. I also want to acknowledge the very serious pressures being faced in emergency departments by patients, by their families and by our healthcare uh, workers. Um, we are not unique in this and deputies uh, across the floor will be aware of the pressures being faced uh, in other jurisdictions around us, in Northern Ireland, in England, in Scotland, in Wales. The number of people attending emergency departments has gone up a lot since before COVID, uh, particularly so for older people who are coming in with more complex needs, who need more care, who, who, who tend to stay in hospital longer. They need longer uh, length to stay. Stephen Donnelly, the Minister for Health, uh, addressing the Sinn Féin motion on health services in the Dáil yesterday. Let's speak to Mead West TD, Johnny Gurk, who we heard there a few moments ago. A very good morning to you, Johnny Gurk. Thanks for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. What did Minister Donnelly have to say uh, about the situation in Navin? He had nothing to say, um, Michael. Um, I, I asked him specifically about Navin, and uh, he didn't address it. Um, and when I uh, asked him across the floor why he didn't address Navin, he said it wasn't uh, 
the the bill that was being discussed. Um, so I did go over to him after, and I I asked him um, what was was this happening today? Whether we were going to be diverting ambulances um, from um, Navin to Drogheda, and he said um, that it was in 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 critically ill cases, and and as as you've heard before yourself, you know. Yeah, and that means that fifty percent fewer ambulances will present at Our Lady's Hospital in Navin. That's what the Irish Times is reporting today, at least. Yeah, and Michael, how would you be a, a paramedic on that ambulance to know whether you would bring somebody to Navan or bring somebody to Drogheda? I wouldn't like their job, you know. Uh, who do the take? Who does go to Drogheda? Who does go to Navan? It's 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 a situation, Michael, that's um, very very badly handled. And in this uh, time, when seventeen consultants have wrote to him last week, uh, saying to him that it is not safe to um, bring any more patients to Drogheda, that there are sixteen doctors short, and they're still coming along and do this today Michael you know, it, yeah. it doesn't make sense <clears throat> It's six months isn't it since uh, Stephen Donnelly said anything about Navin uh, I think it was the 25th of May if my memory serves me correctly yeah, it was, Michael. It was, I think it was May or June. I think it was early June, maybe. Um, but uh, yeah, six months ago, Michael. And um, to be quite honest, Michael, um, in, in my opinion, Michael, and, and, you know, fair play to people like yourself, Michael, you've done your best to keep this, um, uh, you know, on the agenda, keep highlighting it all the time. And I pity, Michael, that our three ministers in meeting did put as much effort into it as you did. But um, it is, Michael, um, six months ago um, uh, since this came on. And we have heard very, very little from Minister only sense only 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 about and today Michael in my opinion is the first step in closing the emergency department in Avon Hospital Well the three ministers obviously uh, would argue otherwise uh, Thomas Byrne with us last week uh, saying uh, that he intervened and called Stephen Donnelly on Thursday night of last week which resulted in changing the protocol that was to come into effect on Monday to the one that's going to come into effect from today I'll bring you back, Michael, to 2017 when they were going to close the emergency department in Port Leash Hospital. Uh, there was political uproar from ministers in the county, Michael. That decision was reversed, Michael. They, put, um, they invested, they protected and they enhanced service in Port Leash Hospital and now is one of the best performance hospitals in the country. And, and that's what we were asking for now. And why didn't it happen in Navan? And maybe, Michael, if our three ministers put on the same uh, pressure that the ministers in Leash done at that time, we would have been able to retain these services. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, um, well, uh, the minister uh, said that he understands uh, the pressure that's on emergency departments, uh, but he he felt the question about Navin wasn't relevant. Uh, Do you think it was relevant, or do you believe, to ask that question a different way, that sending patients to Drogheda instead of Navin is going to put additional pressure on the emergency department in Drogheda? which is very important because the consultants in Drogheda said uh, they're concerned that they won't cope, that it won't be safe, and that people may die. Michael, if you're going to um, put 50% more of the ambulance that was going to Nav and direct them to Drogheda, of course, Michael, is going to put more pressure on Drogheda. So, like, that, that, you wouldn't have to be, Michael, a genius to figure that out. Like, that it's going to, if there was 11 hospitals outside um, um, Our Lady of Lourdes last Saturday week, and they, they come up against the same problem in the next week or two, Michael, instead of 11 hospitals, that's going to be 15 hospitals. Um, so, like, and what we were saying, Michael, if they did invest in Nav and hospital, Michael, they would take the pressure off 
Strada. It would take the pressure off Connolly. It would take the pressure off Cavan. It would take the pressure off Mullingar Hospital. Mm. So, like, it, it, it to make sense, Michael, and the population of Mead has vastly increased since then, you know. Yeah, all right. Um, but Damien English argued here on uh, the programme uh, just two days ago uh, that that will only mean three or four patients. Actually, it was just yesterday, wasn't it? He said just three or four patients uh, will be taken uh, to Drogheda instead of Navin. Well, Michael, I, I, I don't know how many patients are going to be taken, but if you go by the article that's in the Irish Times today, Michael, 50% of the ambulance, Michael, that's more than three or four patients, Michael. And what they're doing, Michael, is they're, they're trying to justify, Michael, the closing down of the emergency department in the Lady of Lourdes Hospital and trying to do it in a... In, in a what I would say, Michael, a sneaky way, um, whether where they're coming along and saying only critically ill patients and that will be diverted to Navin. If you're on that a paramedic on that ambulance, Michael, how are you going to decide uh, who's critically ill or who's, uh, uh, you know, you're going to you're not going to take the chance of bringing somebody to Navin if there's any uh, danger that they should be brought to Drogheda, and that's only going to heap more pressure on the emergency department in Drogheda. Well, the paramedics, in very fairness, are, are highly skilled uh, medics in their own right, and I think they'd have a, a very good understanding. Of of uh, how critical or otherwise the situation might be. Uh, But one of the big problems uh, is staff. When you talk about building up the staff in Our Lady's Hospital in Navin uh, or building up the resources, how do you get the staff? Uh, Because, uh, as you mentioned in the Dáil last night, in Drogheda they can't get the staff. They're 16 doctors short. Uh, So how are you going to get the doctors in Navin if you can't get them in Drogheda? Well, 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 Michael, the INMO done um, a survey and the biggest issue was uh, affordable accommodation was the key to retaining nurses and midwives, Michael. So that, that uh, was 65% of nursing graduates considered an immigrant and the biggest issue, Michael, was housing. So we have to get on top of the housing issue, Michael. We have to build more social, affordable uh, and cost rental houses. And that, uh, I know you, you think, Michael, that, uh, you know, people are, are on housing lists, people are in homeless accommodation, but the mm. housing crisis, Michael, is affecting uh, teachers, it's affecting guards and it's a pe- affection. And you think they can't get the doctors in Drogheda because of housing? Well, Michael, it's 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 the number one issue, Michael, according to the Irish Nurses and Midwives okay, Organisation. Well, I, I, imagine, I imagine there'd be doctors, there'd be housing for 16 doctors uh, because they're short 16 doctors. If they had the 16 doctors, they'd be happy with this protocol, I think. Uh, but they can't get the doctors in Navin either. Uh, and if you can't get them in Drogheda, uh, which I think is probably more attractive for doctors to take up a post given how the hospitals are structured at the moment, you're hardly going to get them in Navin, are you? No, well, Michael, you have to you have to make it attractive for them, Michael. You have to um, in- increase service. And Michael, if, I, I think, Michael, if services were enhanced and protected and enhanced... Uh, but you can't be- do that without the doctors. Yeah, but Michael, if if the if the conditions, Michael, were there that uh, that the doctors were happy with conditions in Navin and they're happy with conditions, it would be an awful lot easier to to hire those doctors. And so, why be. can't they hire them in Drogheda? Well, Michael, maybe the conditions, like when you see, Michael, um, 11 ambulances parked outside, Michael, where, where there's no beds and no trolleys, uh, would that not be one of the reasons why they can't, um, they, they need, you need to sort out those issues, Michael, and put the resources into it, and, and also, Michael, uh, put the resources into places like Navin, where you can take the pressure off uh, hospitals in Drogheda, and then I, I think it would be an awful lot easier to get staff. Okay, when do you expect uh, the emergency department in Navin to close? They're talking about now, Michael. Um, uh, like when I asked him about the review last night, Michael, he, he 
I don't think my letter review will ever be released because there's nothing in it. Um, you know, so I think step two will happen, Michael. Um, you know, in, in January, making a, an Avenue medical assessment unit, but um, they don't seem to be a big hurry on it now. Once they have this first step um, mm. gone out of the way, it well, well, just just what did the minister say about that review? Has he read it? He 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 has it, Michael. Two months. Um, I've asked him, Michael. Um, I I said to him, we 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 as public representatives, we've been told nothing. We we don't know um, what's in the review. We don't know um, what's going on with Our Lady's Hospital in Navan. That's not right. And he apologised, mm. Michael, for 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 not um, briefing us on it. And uh, but did he say he's going to brief you on on it, or did he give you any indication of what the next steps are? No, I didn't, Michael. No, um, I was only talking about for two minutes. No, I know. Yeah, it was yeah. starting again, but um, in my opinion, Michael, today is the first steps in closing the emergency department in Our Lady, uh, Our Lady's Hospital, Navan, and that's my honest opinion, Michael. And I have nothing to gain by um, trying to, uh, you know, get mm. one up on anyone else. That's not my game. That's not how I operate. But it is my honest opinion, Michael, that is the first steps in, in closing the emergency department is today. Okay, we have to leave it there for the moment. Johnny, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Sinn Féin TD for Meath West, Johnny Gurk. Michael Reed on LMFM. New laws introduced in the hope of making it safe for children and young people to go on the internet have come into force. But let's speak to the ISPCC, who have been calling for this legislation and indeed will be monitoring its implementation in the coming months. Fiona Jennings is Senior Policy and Public Affairs Manager with the ISPCC, the Irish Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. And a very good morning to you, Fiona, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. So the Online Safety and Media Regulation Bill uh, is a long time in the coming. Good morning, Michael. It is indeed, yes. Um, it's something that fills the whole area of online safety, children's online safety, and um, we've been working on for quite some time. Um, and I suppose, um, you know, sharing our case experiences so what children and young people were the issues as they were telling us about that they were concerned about and coming to us with and sharing that with um, an Oireachtas committee back in 2017 um, I suppose really kind of brought to the attention or brought it to the attention of our legislators just exactly what children were left to be dealing with um, in the digital environment. Mm. And there's a lot to deal with. A lot of it, of course, is very positive, uh, but it can be very negative uh, situations that children find themselves in. Uh, and when they are in those situations, it can have a huge impact on them. It can, yeah. And I suppose what this Act now is doing, and, um, the Online Safety and Media Regulation Act, is that it's going to establish a new media commission um, that will replace, I suppose, the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. So there'll be a... Um, there's a huge amount of work that the new media commission will be doing, but I suppose one of it and the key foot, what we've been focusing on is around online safety. So exactly as you said there, this new online safety commissioner will be responsible for um, engaging with platforms, regulating um, platforms in terms of the content that that can be served up to children and young people and others. Mm. Is it possible? I mean, I think there's a lot of us who feel we'll believe it when we see it. Uh, there's been talk for, I don't know, uh, as long as the internet has been around about policing the internet and uh, it seems virtually impossible, pardon the pun. Yes, indeed. And I suppose, you know, we 
there I suppose there have been some narratives that have been accepted for quite some time but when um, when content has to be removed we can see how swiftly it can be removed and we're at the stage now where you know we know platforms can do better and now platforms will be compelled to do better the online safety commissioner will be introducing legally binding codes that platforms will have to adhere with in terms of how they manage the content that appears on their platforms. And in particular, it'll be around content that promotes um, suicide and self-harm, that promotes um, eating disorders and promotes um, anything around cyberbullying as well, which is what we've been keenly focused on. Right, and that brings us back to the algorithms, as the tech world called them, which is what's happening beneath the surface, under your screen as such, when you're on the internet and is directing you towards these sites because the Facebook whistleblower believed that they were popular with young people, so they were intentionally doing that and knowingly causing harm. Yes, and I suppose um, just in the UK, we've had um, the report from the coroner into the inquest of Molly Russell. um, And um, that report showed that the content that Molly was served up, you know, did go some way to... um, to causing her to take her own life um, and they were categorical about that in terms of you know what platforms need to do better on um, so hopefully when these codes will come into place that will give the impetus to act better to create a safer digital environment for everybody not just for children and young people and does that mean um, that uh, social media companies for example won't uh, be able to carry uh, sites uh, that promote self-harm or eating disorders? Yes, so the content that there would be a lot more regulation in terms of the content that would be available on these platforms Um, and a lot more of flagging that type of content as well um, in terms of especially content that promotes that type of behaviour which is obviously what we know is quite dangerous Um, content that um, offers help or offers support um, that that will be able to remain but it's it's content that's on the harmful side of it as opposed to the supportive side of it. Okay um, what about bullying uh, and uh, how do you define it uh, because it can have a, a detrimental impact on people and sometimes long lasting impact uh, but other people will say there was nothing in it you know um, I mean, how is it going to be defined if somebody says you're ugly, for example? Mm. Uh, will will that be considered to be bullying? A lot of people would brush it off. Other people would be completely devastated. Yeah, and I think, look, you know, bullying of any forms, whether you're a child or whether you're an adult, it is very subjective. Um, and I suppose one thing that, you know, ISPCC and others fought incredibly hard for was the in the inclusion of an individual complaints mechanism within the, the NOW Act um, and so that is where a child who is being cyberbullied, where if they report particular content, just like the example you gave there, Michael, and that doesn't necessarily reach the threshold for action from a platform, they will now be able to, if you want, bring all those individualised pieces of content to the online safety commissioner. And that will build up a picture to show, well, this young person is actually being bullied online and they will then in turn the commissioner will be able to approach the platforms and advocate if you want on behalf of the young person to get that content removed. Um, 
often, you know, children, they just want the content removed and they just want to be able to move on again. Mm. And sometimes, as you quite rightly said, you know, isolated incidences or standalone incidences can be um, can be difficult to be recognised as cyberbullying. But when all those individual pieces are brought together, it can clearly show that a child is being a victim of or a target of cyberbullying. Okay, so that brings us, I think, uh, to the question that's hardest uh, to answer. Uh, how on earth uh, will anybody ever have uh, the capability of policing that, given the uh, amount of stuff that's said on the internet and the potential for the number of complaints uh, you're calling on government to make sure that uh, the commission is properly resourced. What does that mean, though? Yeah, so I suppose, first of all, we need to make sure that, you know, the commission is set up in a way that they have robust statutory um, um, powers where they can, um, I suppose, um, engage with platforms and platforms will engage with them. But also as well, you know, we know from testimonies of many different individuals um, just how vast this type of work can be. Um, so it really will need to be set up with the, the resources that it needs and not just the financial resources that it needs, but the, the human resources, the technical resources in order to, um, I guess, do its job properly and to, to be the regulator that we need it to be. Okay. <laughs> it sounds like a, a huge job of work. Uh, and uh, it's aspirational for the moment. Let's hope it becomes a, a reality because it's uh, our children's future, which is at stake. Fiona, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Fiona Jennings, Senior Policy and Public Affairs Manager with the ISPCC, the Irish Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Increased energy costs have left a lot of businesses on the brink. The government, in fairness, has responded with the temporary business energy support scheme. And this will see businesses being able to claim up to €10,000 a month to offset the increase in energy bills. In some circumstances, that can increase to €30,000 a month. And it's backdated to the 1st of September. September. However, the Vintners Federation of Ireland is concerned. Let's speak to Paul Clancy, Chief Executive of the VFI. Uh, very good morning to you, Paul, and thanks for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. And you're estimating that some 1,500 rural pubs are left out of this scheme. They don't qualify. They don't, they don't qualify simply because they're not on the natural gas pipeline. They'll qualify for the electrical side of it, uh, but certainly from... Um, the, if you're not on natural gas, unfortunately, if you're using kerosene or, or LPG gas, to heat your commercial premises, you cannot apply for this grant. Okay. Uh, and have prices increased in line with the price increases we've seen for natural gas? Yeah, in fact, in some cases, they're actually higher. Um, and that's the concern, really, is that, you know, uh, we welcome, look, we welcome what the ministers tried to do here, but unfortunately, excluding, you know, potentially 1,500 of our members. And I think it, it'll actually affect all small businesses, really, who are not on the natural gas uh, pipeline. Anybody that uses kerosene or LPG bulk gas would have a similar issue okay. if they're using it to heat their commercial premises. So it's a big swathe of our members, like we've 3,500 members, so 1,500 are affected by this. And look, we feel it's deeply unfair that a large portion of particularly rural businesses need to suffer unduly when the TBS has, could be modified to cater for these members. So essentially nothing really has happened. Uh, you're in the same situation and many of those pubs will be on the brink. 
Yeah, now, thankfully, they'll still be able to, you know, to access the electrical side mm. of it, so that's good. But from a, a heating perspective, if you're not on natural gas, I'm afraid you're goosed. Uh, we've written to the minister on on uh, on, uh, on occasions, and, and he's come back and said, look, because you're not actually on a metered system on the MPRN number, if you don't have your electrical meter or your gas meter, we're unable to... Uh, we're unable to cater for kerosene or LPG through this process. Now, we appreciate that. I mean, if the system doesn't work well, we need to modify the system to make sure that a large proportion of rural Ireland is included in it and helps businesses survive through the difficult winter that's going to be ahead. Because when you say you're goosed, you mean uh, it could be the end of the road. You're estimating that hundreds of pubs may end up closing as a result of energy bills that they're not getting this uh, support for. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, uh, it might sound drastic, but this is is the fact. I mean, the pressure that's on all businesses and including our own businesses is extraordinary at the moment and any help that we can possibly get. And in fairness, that was the purpose of the TBASS is to provide that support. But unfortunately, the way it's constructed, uh, a vast majority, well, 1,500 of our members, over 3,500 are going to be excluded from this particular scheme. So it's a massive big oversight, really, on behalf of government. And we're calling on the minister to put in some form of direct payment, which they were able to do when they did the restart grants to help them through this difficult period. Um, and that can be managed by the Revenue Commissioners. It's, it's fairly straightforward to do. But up to now, unfortunately, um, it's been falling, our requests have been falling on deaf ears. OK, but you believe it was an oversight, do you? Well, uh, you know, we can't understand why, uh, apart we can't understand why they didn't include it in it, because, I mean, it's clear that uh, in rural Ireland, you know, most businesses would be heated with kerosene and uh, LPG gas. So I can't understand, apart from the fact that when we did write to the minister, the response we get was that they didn't have an MPRN uh, number. So I can understand from that perspective, it's tidy that they have got uh, a metering system for electricity and natural gas. But at the same time, this, uh, you know, the, by doing that and putting it into the actual uh, scheme, uh, it, it, it basically keeps 1,500 of our members out of any potential of them claiming any support that's needed. And there should be something running in parallel, really, to help members through this difficult period. Because, as I say, if you're off the natural gas pipeline, um, you just don't have any access to be able to apply for, for this, part, this part of the TBESS, which is a shame. OK. Uh, and can you put any figures on it? Well, look, we were looking at it that, you know, if you look at, a, a, say, a pub in Bandale, which is the, which is the various licence bands, and you put the, that would be a, a pub with the lowest uh, revenue turnover, if they were to get something like €1,000 for December, January and February, that would probably be equivalent to what they're proposing in the natural gas supports. Um, so we don't believe there's any need to give any more uh, to any particular business or, or publican um, in comparison to what they're going to do with the natural gas uh, supports. So there are mechanisms there to be done. And look, all, all businesses are audited anyway, so revenue have a sight of those. So if, if, if they want to check those and do spot checks on them, that's absolutely possible as well. But I think what we're calling for really is, you know, uh, you know to get this deep, what's deeply unfair um, system to try and get some kind of a level playing field here that everybody can access it and help them through the very difficult times they have ahead. Okay, you've uh, made your case very clearly this morning, Paul. Uh, we have to leave it there for the moment, though, unfortunately, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Paul Clancy, Chief Executive of the VFI, the Fintners Federation of Ireland.
almost brings our programme to a close before we go I have to say I got your message if you were one of the people giving out about me uh, we'll come to some of those comments on the programme tomorrow morning we've just run out of time that's the only reason we're not coming to them today but thanks to everybody who was in touch thanks to Maggie McGuire who researched Chris Murray was in the control tower I'm Michael Godwilling we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning 9am LMFM good morning bye bye The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.